All right, ladies, welcome back to the Fem Future Podcast. This is April Summerford, your host, and I can't tell you how excited I am to have our guest on today's show. Natalie Martinick, PhD, is an ex-cancer researcher turned narcissism hacker, consultant, and independent medical culture researcher on the enablers and barriers to professional fulfillment. She investigates human suffering and its influence on behavior in different relational contexts and combines practice wisdom with conceptual frameworks to help people make sense of their suffering to navigate challenging personal and professional relationships. She's someone that I had the pleasure of running into on Clubhouse. If you've heard me talk about Clubhouse before, I kind of had a mild Clubhouse addiction for a few months. And Dr. Natalie is one of the amazing people I was able to meet during that journey of learning about the platform. Dr. Natalie, you come from a really interesting background. I was just saying before we hit record that I had no idea the kind of experience and background you have with not only cancer research, but also that you actually did experiment on some mice in those mouse models of endometriosis, correct? Just for a few months. But yeah, that was one of my first forays into the research world. That is amazing. So I'm probably going to have to have you on this podcast more than once because now there's all kinds of things that we could dig into and would be fascinating to the listeners. But for the purposes of today, I want to try to stay focused on a few of the points of interest I've found that are relevant on my journey that I want other women to take with them. One of the things I do, I always give out toolkits. I'm always giving out like questions to ask your doctor or just different things to equip women when they go in to advocate for themselves in a doctor's appointment. And one of the big issues I ran into in my healing journey was that doctors tend to be a little overpowering in some stances. They tend to exercise authority. Maybe sometimes they go a little far on that point. And sometimes it goes actually all the way into medical gaslighting. So gaslighting and narcissism forever have been intertwined terms. And so I thought, why don't we demystify some of those terms, give us some definitions to bounce on, and then why don't we end all of this with some practical tips women can take to their next doctor's appointment so that they feel empowered. I don't like the word empowered. It's it's a rough word. It's like you have the power. I just want them to know that they have it. And then I want them to be able to feel comfortable to exercise that power. So with all that said, tell us a little bit about how you got into becoming a narcissism hacker. Such an interesting thing. So my background was a biologist. So I studied developmental biology and it was really looking at what, what enables an embryo to develop into this full adult animal person and what are the different processes involved. And I was particularly interested in the movement of cells. So the migration of cells from one place of origin to another destination and then their differentiation into, you know, the different diverse organs and systems of the body. And I went from that into cancer research and I moved from Toronto, Canada to Melbourne, Australia to undertake my postdoc. And I wasn't thrilled with entering into the cancer research world because going from a basic biology, there's not a lot of pressure and there's a lot of creativity and and ability to explore. You go into a medical research environment, there's a lot more money, a lot more funding, a lot more pressure to produce something that will go into a high level publication and to be doing research that is seen as sexy. So while I was studying, continuing to study models of you know, migration, I was working the fruit fly and I was starting to look at the ovary where there's a group of cells that migrate as part of their normal development, but they stay together. And we wanted to use this model to look at tumor metastasis. What are the similarities in what enables a group of cells that are stationary 
to suddenly be able to move together from one part of the, of the organism to another. And in the fruit fly case, it was about fertility, but the research was about looking at how does the tumor become metastatic and uh, using the fruit flies as a model. And while I was there staring under the microscope, watching these amazing videos of live cell movement, I was looking around me and noticing certain behaviors, accepted norms, behavior around me that were quite toxic. I was seeing favoritism. I was seeing negligence. I was experiencing it. I was noticing the mental state of the men who are the lab heads and the mental state of the women who are lab heads. And I was seeing a bit of a difference. I was seeing who was getting promoted, who was being favored, who was dubbed the anointed ones or the golden child, and who wasn't. And um, feeling my experience of it. And I became more interested in what was going on in the metastasis of toxic behavior more than the metastasis of these movements of these cells. And it led to my decision to leave because of a number of reasons. You know, when you're in an environment where you see behaviors and you start to develop those behaviors yourself in order to survive in that system, and you, you're aware that that's happening, and you're not liking yourself as a result because you're seeing that you are now that system. You are doing exactly the things that you're judging around you. It does affect you, your morals. And so I decided this wasn't good for me and I had to leave. You know, it enabled me to start to ponder what's behind this behavior. What would cause people to act like this? Because nobody's happy acting like this. So what is causing suffering? Which is a question I've had leading into my scientific journey and the exit didn't answer the question of what causes suffering. And as a result, how does our suffering influence our behavior, whether it's pro-social, where we're able to collaborate and cooperate with people and seek each other out for mutual benefit, or look at how do I use people and exploit people to get what I want, because that's kind of the system I exited. And I notice even though I left that place, I go into a different place, it still exists. So that's what I call narcissism, because it's more than just look at me, look at me, it's all about me, give me, give me, take, take, take. And I'm entitled to, to have all that. And I have privilege that I don't even you know, acknowledge. It's more than that. It's about control and power. And it looks at the way I need to feel. I need to maintain my comfort. And how do I make others do that for me? So I need to control other people's way of looking at me, my self-image and their perception of my image, my reputation. I need to control how they think and feel so that my perspective is always right. My worldview is never challenged. It, it's maintained. I need to control their experience of me, their narratives, their behaviors, and not just of me, but of how I see the world. I need people to match up with what I require to maintain my comfort. I require them for my comfort. And I also start to see people as my resources. You know, oh, I see this person has more social power than I do. So how do I get in line with them so that I can have what they have? So I'm not there to form a relationship because I like them or I value them. I need them for something. So that's exploitation. And they might need me for something that might exploit me, but I don't mind if I feel like it's getting me where I need to go. This is what we see in our everyday life. It doesn't matter the industry. And we're capable of expressing these dominating behaviors, exploitative, silencing, gaslighting, invalidating. When we're feeling threatened, when we're feeling insecure, inferior, we can go into different places in our mind and in our behavior in order to 
meet our emotional needs. And if we're not aware that that's how we're going about it, that we're having a negative effect on people and people are afraid to let us know or they do let us know and we don't take any of that feedback on board because our egos are so fragile, we are going to go through life just burning bridges and having somewhat destructive relationships until we start to assume responsibility for that we're the common denominator in all of this. That's like a very broad overview about narcissism. And basically, once I left academia, I was really more interested in human behavior, group dynamics, power dynamics, because that was what I was noticing in the academic environment. So I trained in facilitation and mediation. So understanding conflict and how to work through conflict, how to facilitate uh, a resolution among disputing parties and recognizing the conflict begins in ourself. And again, that influences our behavior and how we either connect with people or develop adversarial relationships with people or exploitative relationships and remembering what do I want that is sustainable and makes me feel good about myself, not because someone else is validating me, but it comes from a deep sense of knowing and confidence and, and value in myself. And how do I express those attributes in a way that never exploits anyone else or presses anyone else for my well-being. So that's where I've come to. Well, you definitely have to be on this podcast for more than one more than one episode because to unpack everything you just said, I, I could think of like four different things that I know my community are probably going to want to explore. Let's focus a little bit on gaslighting today, though, yes. if that's okay. And you can talk about invalidation as well, because that's another thing that unfortunately frequently happened to me in the doctor's office in the past. And I want women to know when these things are happening. I just want them to start to become more aware of when they're happening and when something is going in a trajectory that is actually not good for them. So I've been in positive doctor-patient relationships where the doctor is honoring my decision, my power, and is giving me choices and is saying, these are the things that I think might work best, or this is something you might want to explore. What do you want to do? And giving me the decision. And I felt very honored and I was able to move forward and heal in that process. And then I've been in the situation where uh, many women talk about where the doctor said, you have to do this, or, and then they scared me. Like it was like, or this terrible thing is going to happen to you. And if you don't do it right now, I don't know. In this particular context, it was like, I don't know if you're ever going to be able to get pregnant or if you're ever going to be able to have kids. And so unfortunately, I've collected at this point, not just my story now, I've listened to women for a few years about these problems and I've collected, of course, anecdotal, but stories of women who've been feared into hysterectomies. They've been feared into complete hysterectomies where they take the ovaries. They've been feared into a, a whole bunch of interesting you know, treatments and things of which some of them really regret these decisions because they later on decided they did want to have a family and they wish they wouldn't have gone that route or whatnot. So I'm all about every person has their own journey. We all mm -hmm. walk our own path, so to speak. But we want to find partners on the journey, especially with healing that are helping us actually move through the healing process and not just numbing symptoms or trying to shut something down because that thing is bad. And I'm saying that thing, meaning the cycle, because it's like, it seems to be the doctors like to shut down women's cycles because mm. they're so bad and it just irks me. So I know that's not concise, but I'll come and wrap it up. So what is gaslighting? What is dismissal? Maybe kind of define a few of these things and how might a woman know when it's actually occurring? I think with gaslighting, there's a number of ways to describe it. And, you know, some of the examples you gave where there's the shutting down, the invalidation, that is part of the gaslighting strategy. So gaslighting, in my experience, is a denial of one's narrative for a preferred narrative. So 
continuing repetitive use of that narrative or that message so that eventually it influences that other person to start to believe it's truth, that it's true. And it's more true than my own truth (laughs) because the intention is that the other person eventually internalizes that untrue narrative because the person in power is very invested in that remaining true because that's part of the way they believe. I could say I'm feeling pain and the other person, the doctor will say, no, you're not. That's just in your head. That's gaslighting. But it's not one-off thing. It's going to be a a number of different strategies that, again, are meant to invalidate your experience and insert a preferred experience that aligns with that person, that experts, that the person with the greater authority or perceived authority to have their way, to maintain their worldview about you and your situation. And it's not often conscious. That's the hardest thing. Very few people are doing that deliberately to gaslight, like as in the movie, where the term gaslighting came from. So that's the hardest bit because it's just part of the way they communicate and the way they maintain their sense of comfort when their worldview is threatened, when they're encountering uncertainty or information that is foreign and unexpected and lack the humility to be able to go, oh, wow, I haven't heard of this before or this is some new information. Let's process this for a bit. Let's talk about it a bit more. So that's essentially gaslighting. So it incorporates invalidation of your experience, shutting down of your experience. So no, that's not happening or that didn't happen. Disapproval of your behavior. Your tone is disrespectful, that sort of thing. Things like that. So it's trying to make you feel like you're doing something wrong or the way you're perceiving your experience is wrong. That's if you don't know yourself and you don't trust yourself and you don't have that confidence in yourself or on shaky ground that someone else can influence your self-belief and self-perception because they come in with a lot of confidence and maybe some credentials and you already have given them trust because of their position in society or in healthcare. So all of those combined is what would make gaslighting effective or possible rather than you being able to call BS on what that person's saying to you. Right. And I'm glad that you said and clarified that a lot of the time this is unconscious. Because something I've noticed is that most of the doctors that I've run into that are employing some of these behaviors and as maddening and frustrated as I get knowing they're employing them, they don't really know they're doing it. Most of them. I say most of them. There's a few diabolical ones I've run into that are actually employing some of these strategies on purpose. Those ones are a different animal. But my first doctor, for example, she actually had no malicious intent with me. She wasn't actually trying to keep me stuck in my healing journey. She just didn't know better. And she didn't really have that curiosity to say, you know what? You might want to look at mm. some other solutions. You might want to venture out. I wish she would have said that. She didn't say that. But she just was giving me all of her training and that's mm. that's all she knew. So I think there's actually a few issues with the way doctors are trained with some of these issues. I learned this in sort of personal development in the coaching world. There's a way that you can engage someone and lend power and give them all the power back. And it seems like in the medical field, they haven't learned quite some of those conversational dynamics. And just the sheer fact of becoming the doctor turns them into a little bit more defensive than is maybe sometimes helpful. Any thoughts on, you know, why this is happening so frequently unconsciously? This has been an area of of research and interest for many, many years of what happens to these people? Because I've noticed so many friends going through medical training and coming out the other side and the personality has changed. They're still them, but there's something different. 
So I started to go, what's happening during this process? So if you think about it, you're taking impressionable people who want to help people, who want to help people heal, alleviate suffering, all these lofty goals, and they're introduced to their very first encounters with a patient is with a cadaver. So not a you know, a live person, but a dead one. And then they are required to use that dead one to learn about anatomy and physiology. So dissecting. So there isn't much about the doctor patient relationship and how to cultivate those uh, connection skills in order to actually facilitate healing. That is not actually part of a formal, from my understanding, formal part of training. I think training is changing. But there's empathy training, so a lot of the cognitive empathy. There isn't a how do we sit with someone when they're in their suffering and not have to do anything about it because everything's about saving lives. So someone's bringing their problem to me. We need to fix it. We need a solution. We need to diagnose. We need, you know, there's a lot of that urgency also with the reduction of times of consultation time that plays into this urgency. But there's something that happens through that process where you have to develop this you know, your medical judgment and this sense of certainty. So you, you're given all this information and you're, there's a sense that you as a health practitioner or a physician have to have the answer. And without modeling from a senior person that it's okay to say, I don't know, let's look this up. Or, you know, I need to refer you to a specialist or someone else who is more, has more knowledge around this area or let's look this up together. Without that modeling, it's almost like people don't have permission to actually admit that they don't know because the part of the, the professional medical identity that's formed is around knowledge and, and certainty and giving off the sense of confidence because you want your patient to trust you and they have better outcomes when they feel confident and trusting in the doctor. There's a number of narratives that have been internalized that have created this kind of medical professional identity and some people who can stay rooted to their culture and their activities outside of medicine and their interests outside of medicine, they tend to maintain that ability to connect empathically with people and be able to listen and seek to understand their experience rather than trying to overlay that person with the picture that they have in their head already based on a little bit of information within a short encounter. Because everyone's trying to make shortcuts, if you hear how doctors speak, there's lots of non-English, you know, lots of acronyms. And so it's all about efficiency. Mm -hmm. And in, as a result of this efficiency, there's been this loss in the time taken to connect with patients. And I don't even think that's necessarily part of their clinical training. It's more of like, do you know how to answer these questions versus how did you connect with that patient? What did you do? What was the effect of what you did? How do you know that that was the effect? Reflecting on the actual doctor-patient experience. And comes out of, you know, I won't go into the history of medical institution, but if you think about its origins, there was a bunch of white men who were, you know, upper-class elite creating this kind of field. So that's the history. That's the foundation. The foundation is still there to this day. So it's doctors, God, doctors know everything. Doctor is the expert. So it's this expert model. So if they're the expert, then there's no room for you to be the expert on your own body, your own experience, your own self-knowledge that you could bring into that space, unless that doctor wants to work with you in that way and that kind of develop a partnership. 
where it's I bring in my medical expertise, you bring in your expertise on your, your life and what you've done to date. Let's combine that and see what emerges because none of us have the answers. The answer emerges as a result of this partnership that we are co-creating and both parties need humility. Both parties, you know, there needs to be mutual respect and trust in that relationship and to be able to negotiate. Where do we go? What's the line of inquiry that we'd go down? The doctor shares, this is what I'm thinking you know, this is the path that I'm thinking about, but here's some additional questions. Like there's more of a dialogue rather than assessment based on limited information and a need to fix the problem immediately. It's coming from a good place most of the time, but it's often coming from a place of, I need to maintain my comfort and what do I need to do with this patient in order to have the answer and feel good. And then they'll feel good and everyone will feel good. And it's a more primitive way of thinking. And I know what I'm saying might sound disrespectful. And I'm again, I'm trying to make a, a broad generalization of something that can be so nuanced and complex. And But there is something that happens during the training that assimilates doctors into a particular way of thinking and being because they have to in order to survive that culture. And if you look at the statistics of mental health and addiction and suicide, I mean, it's scary. So something's happening during their training that is resulting in this. It's not that they were broken people before they entered. Something is occurring that is causing people to have to start to reduce their intuitive abilities or their empathic abilities in order to achieve the certain requirements that are assessed, that are more valued, that are more about the intellect or cognitive skills and less about relational skills, which ironically are the things that are required to facilitate healing. Yes, it makes total sense. And and I think you hit on several important points about just the system itself is flawed. I was on another podcast and we were talking about how the whole system needs a retooling. And I believe that when you look at an individual and our behaviors, you have to look at the environment too, right? So it's really unfair to just look at an individual and not investigate the environment. And I mean that in every aspect. So not just like in my own personal healing, I had to investigate my environment and see what was going on, what was triggering certain things, what, you know, was it actually the environment and not me? And a few things were the environment. And I had to go fix a few things in my environment to help facilitate healing. Other times, it's the culture of something itself. Like we were talking about the culture of a workplace or the culture of a profession can have these kind of odd idiosyncrasies that cause certain behaviors to be valued or emerge as the most important thing. And so when I was talking with a good friend of mine, she was like, man, you talk about how to really help facilitate women with endometriosis, we're going to have to have a whole system overhaul. And I said, yes, because the current model is still built on the number of volume of patients you can get through your door in a day. And that model does not work for a chronic illness because you're talking about a lot of deep inner work that these people are going to need to do to get healing. And there has to be trust. There has to be this co-creation of the healing experience. The only way I've found healing is co-creating healing experiences with people. That's the best yep. way to explain it. And it hasn't been because someone told me something about myself and how I need to go do blah, blah, blah. That doesn't work at all. I've tried that too. It doesn't work. So in order to co-create, it takes time. You know, co-creation takes hours sometimes. I've been on coaching calls and I, we didn't even get to the nugget or the thing that we needed to get to for three hours or something. So it's terribly inefficient but it's highly effective because we got to the root thing. Yeah. And it's, again, what is valued efficiency or effectiveness, you know, and how do you assess effectiveness? The KPIs don't measure that necessarily. What 
people fail to recognize is that it's said a lot, your patients are your greatest teachers. You know, you have your medical training and after, but it's your patients who are your greatest teachers. So if you are coming in as the expert, how are you in a position to learn from anyone? You're there to show your knowledge and constantly give ideas and teach patients more about health or whatever. But when are you stopping to listen and to receive as well? Because the healing isn't just a one-way, it's a two-way. There's something that emerges, like I mentioned. And if you're in a culture, you know, you didn't learn about that. You're not going to value it. So a patient can come in with that value and the doctor won't have that value. There'll be a clash of values unless there's a conversation that brings it out in the open and then there could be a negotiation. But again, that would have to come from the doctor wanting that kind of relationship. And the culture does bring out those behaviors, which is what I was saying. I'd noticed what happened to me. I was behaving in ways that were beyond what I would ever imagine myself to do and turned me into a really nasty person. And so it was the environment. I took myself out of the environment. I didn't do that again because of having to behave this way in order to survive caused me to act like, you know, douche to other people. And it went against my own ethical principles. So this is what's happening in medicine as well. It's rife, this moral injury as well. So this is the environment that patients are coming into. So this is an important conversation. It's like bearing this in mind, especially in light of COVID and the additional stressors that's put on the system and all the practitioners. What do the patients need to bring with them? What knowledge do they need to arm themselves with and communication skills to be able to connect with physicians? And how do you tell this, this connection ain't going to happen? I need to find someone else because healing is not about the information they can give me and the, and the knowledge that they've accumulated. I can see any doctor for that. It's got to be about the relationship. Hundred percent, and I talk about this all the time in my support group. About I feel like I'm almost a joke that I feel like I'm almost like a dating yenta matching person, you know, where it's like I have a list of doctors, but I'm like just because I have a list doesn't mean that you will fit well with any of those doctors on that list. And so I also have a list of questions that I recommend women take with them to doctors' appointments to help vet a doctor and find out. It's sort of like dating questions, you know. It's like hmm, let's talk about some of these topics and see how you respond. And I did that because there's no way anyone can have a comprehensive list of all the best people for you because we don't know how you're going to interact with that person until you just try it and see if you click or not. It's very similar. I feel like it's very much so like dating now when I meet a new doctor. It's like, I feel them out. I see if we connect. I see how I feel around them. I, I do a body exam. I, I listen to my intuition. If something's wrong or something's not right about them, I just, I tread lightly. If I get all the good things and I'm feeling confidence in myself, if I'm feeling esteemed, if I'm feeling listened to, if I'm feeling space, then I, I'm okay. Let's try an appointment. Let's see what are your, what are your treatments, you know, and I kind of move forward. So all that to say, what are some of the things you found are helpful that we could equip women with that kind of help them assess these things maybe a, a little quicker? Because I know especially with doctors, since it isn't dating, you're spending money to actually go talk to somebody. And then you're going to spend more money on their treatments or their interventions, depending on what they are. They can be very expensive. Some of them relatively not. It just depends on the doctor. So any tips or um, hacks? I, I like the word hack, any hacks to help them kind of figure out quickly if they're in a good doctor-patient relationship or if they might need to examine it and move yeah, on? Yeah, great questions again. And you got me thinking about the making a shidduch in you know, Judaism where the, <laughs> there's the matchmaker <laughs> and you're arming people with the right questions to assess the family. What kind of family did they come from? What kind of medical school did they come from? Yeah, that doesn't mm -hmm. really matter. Again, it's about the person, but 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's hilarious. So you already gave really great indicators of what to look for. That's assuming a woman is actually connected to her body and intuition and can read, listen to the signals that her body is saying about this other person and whether or not this person is to be trusted enough that you could pursue a doctor-patient therapeutic relationship with them. So one of the things to look out for is if there's gaslighting, if you share what's going on for you and they automatically have this picture as if they know you and they present that back to you and it doesn't really resonate. You know, it sounds like a great piece of evidence, but it doesn't really resonate. So they might throw evidence at you or they're not really listening to you and your story. The way you can tell when someone's listening to you and your story is that, first of all, they're not talking, they're listening. They might be doing mm-hmm, showing you body language, that they're listening, um, the typical eye contact, all that stuff. They'll also be summarizing what you're saying to make sure they understand what you're saying. It's their interpretation of what you're saying, but they're not trying to insert their ideas into your story. They're just feeding back to what they understood from what you shared and checking in with you that they got it right. And they'll say things, can I check with you? I want to make sure I got this. This is what I understood from what you shared. So they're, they're showing interest and they're making an effort to want to understand you. And I don't come across that often in doctors. But again, it depends on the specialty. It depends on a number of of variables. So that attempt to summarize or paraphrase or really show that they understand. Some might be performative because that's what they've learned to do that they know helps with the connection with patients. As long as you feel like you're being listened to and you feel like they're getting you, that's a positive sign. If they do things like invalidate, like what I mentioned before, I don't think that that's what's happening. Again, with very little information, they already make this kind of draw conclusion very quickly. Just be alert to that. That's a red flag because it's like I'm the expert in this moment of your story and this is the conclusion I'm making with very little information. A positive sign is they're like, can you tell me more about your history? Can you tell me more about certain relationships or or events going on in your life? They're interested in your ecology. What is influencing or contributing to your current set of symptoms right now? That goes beyond just your physical body. Let's do some exploration about what else is happening in your life. When did these symptoms come on? Have they changed? Have they moved around? What was going on in your life when that was happening? You know, and they could try to link it to some external stressors that gives you an idea of maybe a pattern. They're looking for patterns. That's what I do as as a coach. I look for patterns in what seems like disparate aspects of someone's story. There's a common thread always. And it's looking for that. You know when you've hit that thread because the person feeds back to the patient what they're coming to understand based on your story. And you feel the effect. You know, you might have an emotional reaction in your body. You might have tears. You might go, oh, my God, this is aha moment because they're able to gain some insight from the story that you're sharing and piece some things together. So they're suspending their medical knowledge because they're waiting to hear a little bit more about your story and get a picture of what's going on for you. They share that picture back to you. You make sure our pictures are the same. Then they can go, okay, this is from my medical expertise. This is what I can share with you based on what you've told me. So they don't launch into their medical knowledge right away. They take the time to get to know you first and hear more about your story, make sure they're on the same page as you. And then they start to insert where it's appropriate because while they've been listening to you, I'm sure they would have been ruling out some things because they're aware of the assumptions they're making based on the story you're sharing. And they're like, oh no, that's not it. 
that's not it, maybe this, maybe this. And then they present that information to you. So it's more customized to your, your story and their understanding of your story versus their initial reaction and their initial response to what you're sharing because they're just using shortcuts to go, ah, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. It could be none of those things. It could be none of those things. It might be a lifestyle stressor and you might just need to, maybe it's a relationship in your life. From my experience, narcissistic relationships that we have, and again, are not always about abuse. They could be, I don't have a voice in this relationship. I can't speak my mind because every time I do, I get gaslit. And I've learned that I, I can't have a space for myself there, but yet I'm still trying to maintain this relationship. That in itself is a major stressor. And if you've got more than one of those types of relationships going on in your life, that will manifest physically in some way and emotionally and psychologically. And so unless someone's able to investigate that with you, we could just be throwing these, you know, advanced interventions at you that may of course help, but there could have been something else that might've been an easier fix or a quick win before we entertain these different high-flying interventions. I mean, that's the ideal kind of encounter in my opinion, <laughs> with the doctor and, and the things to look at, to, the things yeah. that you want to experience. You want to feel heard. You want to feel validated. You want to feel, God, this person gets me, or this person seems to know enough about not only their domain of expertise, but they, they see me, they understand me, that there's a connection there. That's what you're looking for. And unfortunately, that's a luxury, right? Because that doesn't come naturally as a result of training. That must be someone's innate ability or they've had really great modeling or they've pursued other professional development. And another thing, they give interventions and they sit with you and going, you know, this is costly, or this is what this intervention is going to ask of you to change in your life in order to be able to do it. Let's talk about what that looks like. Let's talk about the risk and benefit of doing stuff like that. If they're able to take the time to do that, amazing. Because often it's just like, here's the answers. This is what you're going to need to do. And they don't really consider the impact that that's going to have on you and what sacrifices you'll have to make in order to do those things. Yes. And it's funny because I know my community is going to like, Does she, is she reading my mind? Does she understand everything I've been through by you saying that? Because so many of us in the Indo community are dealing with so many things coming at us and it's hard to decipher, you know, and you're just, you're learning about yourself. You're learning about this issue you're having. You're like trying to learn your way through it. And then it doesn't help that when you go to the doctor's office, they're supposed to be the person that's supposed to help you make sense of all this and find healing. And in many cases, they are rushing to judgment. So a, a real quick one I can think of that happens all the time with the rush to judgment thing is doctors who don't have time for women with endo tend to just throw birth control at them. That's the thing that that's their favorite thing to do. They just say, oh, you know what? And it's exactly what you just said. They literally don't listen to your story. They don't listen to all the surrounding circumstances. They don't connect with you. They just throw a pack of pills at you and say, here, take these. And the problem is, and I tell women all the time, birth control can work for a time for some, and I don't have any problem with women using it for that, but it needs to be understood that it's a temporary solution. It's like a little complicated Band-Aid sticker that someone's thrown at you. It's actually not going to get into any of the underlying issues of what your body's trying to tell you, of what it's trying to resolve. It's not going to fix it. And I know because I did suppress my body for a little while. It worked for a time. And then the body took over and said, oh, no, you're done. You're going to listen to what I, <laughs> and this is me, but you're going to listen to what we have to say. This is, you're done. Like the birth control stops working cold for me. And I was like, okay, we're going to deal with this. So I have no problem with women using it responsibly. I just, I don't want them to think, yes, this is a cure for my problem, and then wonder why in a decade they have a severe case where they need some invasive surgery, which really could have been prevented, I think, in many cases, if 
the root issues were dealt with a little bit sooner. So um, rushing to judgment, really important one to watch at the doctor's office happens a lot. The other thing you said, you know, not leaving space and time for your comprehensive story and to really understand what's going on because we're all different. And just because I saw three patients with the same issue as you doesn't mean that they're the same root issues going on that cause those symptoms. So I need to dig into your story and figure that out. And then I know it is a luxury. So any tips on how to negotiate with some of these individuals who aren't going to be like, we just gave a standard of like the highest height, you know, like ideally you find someone who does all of these things and have learned these things. A lot of this is still rather new right now to the medical community anyway. And I'm, I'm having a hard time finding doctors myself. I found a handful and I hold them tightly because they're amazing. But I know that everyday women come to me and they're like, that's great. You found your team, April, but how do I build my team? So any tips on how to navigate through some of these individuals that they're maybe they're really skilled at what they do, but they're not going to be great at the doctor-patient relationship component? Again, it's what the person values. Some people just like the doctor who knows everything. And that's who you look for, the one who is up to date on the research and all the techniques and therapies and interventions out there. What can help sometimes is you share your story and they want to give you an assessment and they might go, yep, this is what I think is happening. You go, it's great. You have lots of knowledge about this. This is what I'm looking for. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Can I check with you? Can you just share your understanding of what you just heard about my story? Just want to make sure we're on the same page. So you're being respectful but you're also not assuming they got your story. They are listening and they're looking to confirm their biases, their existing biases of, I've heard your story before. I think I know what this is. I'm just only going to hear for the things that confirm. So they're not listening to your whole story. They're very focused on what they're listening out for. So it's a way for you to check. I just want to make sure we're on the same page before we proceed. Can you let me know what your understanding is of my story, of my issues before we go on? And so they will share that with you and then it'll give you an opportunity to know how well they listen. And then you can go, is it okay if I fill in some of the gaps? Because you got some things there, but I think there's some other details that I'd love you to also incorporate into your assessment. Yeah, I was going to say, so if it goes down poorly, because I've had those situations go down poorly where presenting a piece of research or something I had recently learned and the doctor, it went really badly because they got defensive. And some of the behaviors you said earlier happened, they said into sort of like, how dare you, you know, I'm the doctor kind of a thing instead of just exploring what I was bringing to them. Then all of a sudden now they're diminishing my intelligence and doing all kinds of other things instead of just looking at what I asked. Uh, so what does a woman do when that situation happens? I mean, obviously you always have the option of eventually firing your doctor and finding another one, but above that, is there any other strategies that help? Yeah. You don't want an adversarial or confrontational experience because you're the one paying, you know, you're the, like, I hate the word customer in the medical world, but this is an exchange. You're, they're there to serve you, not the other way around. You're not there to make the doctor feel good about themselves. They need to manage their stuff themselves. They need their own self-soothing regulation techniques. So if they're unable to offer that to you, you're not going to feel safe with them. It's more than an intervention. Like we said, it's the relationship. They need to be invested in you in a way that they make themselves feel good because they provided some sort of therapy that validated their greatness as a doctor. You're not there to serve them in that way. They're there to serve you. So if those roles have been reversed, you're going to feel it. You're not going to want to be with that person. You're going to dread going to these appointments. You're going to think you need that person. For whatever reason, so many people have this automatic loyalty to a doctor, but if they're not there 
to actually connect with you and help you out with what you're looking for, they don't deserve your loyalty. You could move on. There'll be someone else. They will be. There are so many out there. It just means that avenue is closed. So same with the doctor. If they are unable to go, I thought I've heard similar cases before, but this sounds a bit different. This sounds a bit beyond my specialization. Here, I'm going to refer you onward. So the way you approach a person when they start to get defensive, when you're bringing some of your information, you automatically go, right, they're not going to be open to hearing anything of me, but I need to be very much part of this relationship. So I'm just going to acknowledge that in the moment to myself internally, quietly, that this is not the right fit. And I'll just finish up this conversation and just go, I'd love to hear your expert opinion. I'll take this information away and think about it. Thank you very much for your time. And you leave and you don't continue the relationship with that person. You could give feedback. And again, you don't have to be nasty. Just go, we're just not the right fit. The way you want to work with me is not the way I want to be worked with. And it does, it's not personal. It's just different set of value, different style of relating. But use that as an information gathering. You know, you're gathering evidence about yourself through the interactions you have with different doctors. And yes, it can be costly, but it is the investment you need to make in yourself. Not everyone can afford it. They have to get who they get. And that's the unfortunate reality for so many women. But you're, you're allowed to leave. You're always allowed to leave the relationship. Yes, thank you for saying that. Because I know personally, talking from several years on my journey, and I did not have a team when I started. So I, I started with one sole person, and then I found another one. And I started to round out my, as I would now mm. call it, my healing team, right? But I didn't start with a team. I didn't have the resources to start with a team. I started with one individual. And so over time, it may seem impossible that you can find someone that you can afford and also work with. But I think that resources, this is why I'm excited about the future, resources are getting more affordable. We're kind of demonetizing and we're really getting to the point where some of this femtech that's coming out, which I'm going to highlight on this podcast, is going to actually put more of that data about yourself in your own hands. And that means that you're saving money at the doctor's office because you're not always relying on someone else to pull a metric that you might want to monitor or you might want to watch that tells you how your body's doing. So I think that even though things are still expensive, I think they will be more affordable in the future and that more of these types of doctors are going to come on the scene and they're going to be successful because right. people are going to want to work with them because they actually are very effective. Not as efficient mm. maybe, but more effective, yes. <laughs> which is what we need. So thank you so much for just everything that you shared was just invaluable. You said things in ways I would never have said them, but they're, they're how I feel. So thank you for putting words to some of the things that I've kind of noticed on my journey and things I want to help other women understand on their journey. And before I let you go today, one of my questions right now is, what are you excited about in the next five to 10 years? Things that are emerging right now that you think are going to make a big difference in the future. I think what you've mentioned, April, is the having more of your data on yourself and your own hands. So the physiological metrics that you can go, these are what my hormones are doing. This is what my bloods are doing. This is what my blood pressure, all that. You have that available. You don't need to go through those rituals with, with a doctor. Another thing I'm excited about, and it sounds weird, is the revelation within the medical field about the level of trauma that they've experienced as a result of their training, maybe even before it, and that's compounded as a result of the training, the questioning, the challenging, and the doctors reassessing their values and looking to create their own clinical experiences that match their vision when they decided to go into medicine. That is not about 
making shit tons of money, that's fine, but it's about the connection with the patient and coming back to the patient, not having these third-party insurers and all sorts of other hands in the pie. The middlemen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hate middlemen. The middle, the middle <laughs> yeah. people. Yeah, and more because there's more awareness about trauma that those are now part of the conversations. Lots of doctors are going on to train in trauma-informed practices or trauma-responsive practices, that excites me the most because that's the root, right? That's the root. If we think about narcissism, it's that's the root. If we think about suffering, that's the root. We need to address that. It's not physical things are a manifestation of some other underlying issue. And unless we can get to the root cause, we're always just treating symptoms and fighting fires and putting them out and band-aiding. We're not getting into the guts of it all. So that I'm seeing more of that. The problem with that is whenever there's some new learning, everyone gets excited, everything becomes about that thing and it, it can be pushed on the patient and mm. they can also, again, use that to gaslight the patient. Oh, that's your trauma. Let's, you know, versus let's sit with you and let me hear your story. Let's create space for that to come out and for me to help unpack that with you and use that information to be able to customize what we do with you, what is available to you. And let's rule out some things that are from your life that you can deal with. You might need a referral to a coach, relationship coach. You might need a referral to a counselor, psychotherapist. Let's think about that. So as trauma information becomes more available and more doctors are interested in it and more emphasis on we work as a team, we don't have all the answers. We need to be able to know who else is out there that, that can work with this person and more multidiscipline approaches. I think that will be better for everyone involved because you will feel effective. You don't feel great when you're efficient unless you're trying to please the authority who loves efficiency, you know, the daddy figure of <laughs> the culture. You feel good when you know that what you did with someone was effective. It had a meaningful impact on their, on their well-being, on their life, and that you got that feedback. That's how you know. That's what keeps you going. It doesn't matter what profession, helping profession. So if you're able to cultivate those experiences more, then why wouldn't you? And because that, that's apparently what people go into the field for. I love how you distinguish between the efficiency and the effectiveness and aiming for effective. So I think all of that that I've just said taken together is what will guide the, in the culture as well as the, I, I hate the word industry, but that, that sector into wanting. It is an industry though. So yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So if the industry can be guided in a positive direction, that's, that's a good thing for, like you said, I believe that's a good thing for everyone because I've seen burned out doctors and nurses and it's like, this is not sustainable, not only for the patients, but also for the medical professionals. Mm -hmm. They, They need a better, more sustainable system that is effective as well, where they can have time off and have mental space and all the things you were just saying, I think, which we'll have to do another podcast where we delve into some of these things, but the the lack of time to self-soothe, the lack of time to restore themselves, their own health is leading into more traumatic experiences. We're just perpetuating trauma exactly. instead of actually healing altogether exactly. because these doctors are just kind of spewing their own traumas on you. And you're like, Hey, I came here to deal with my traumas and it's, it's not going well. No. So uh, I can't wait to talk with you again in the future. We'll have to dissect some more of these things. This was such a really great informative podcasts and I know women are going to find it useful and helpful. Real quick before we go, where can people find your work? Where can they engage with you? What platforms do you like to engage on? Well, we met on Clubhouse. So I I love Clubhouse. You can find me there talking about 
all sorts of things, relational things, but especially about narcissism and how to address our own issues of needing to be in control and why and how and how to do things differently. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram, um, the hacking, the narcissism hacker on Instagram, and I'm at Nats for Docs on Twitter. And I have a website and a uh, Substack. So I've got stuff everywhere. I've been writing more on Substack. So just Google my name, Substack, you'll find it. I speak, a, it's exclusively about noticing narcissistic behavior, the subtlety. You know, there's lots of narcissism experts out there who talk about the more obvious. I'm more about the subtle to help people become aware of the very early warning signs so that you could assess if this relationship's going to go well or not and to withdraw as early as possible so you don't find out down the track when it's harder to get out of it. Awesome. Thank you again so much for being here. And I'm sure I'm going to have you again because there's just too much juicy stuff to dig into here. But thank you so much for your work. I'm so glad I met you. And this is, this has been amazing. So thank you so much. Thank you. future podcast was created and is hosted by april summerford executive podcast producer mather de leon this podcast is for information purposes only statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice this podcast including april summerford and the producers disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein opinions of guests are their own and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests this podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.